We'll read this morning from Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 in its entirety. Hear the word of the Lord. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk, and became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his young, what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And you be seated. Well, so far in our exposition of Genesis, just by way of a quick review, we have seen creation, Adam and Eve in the garden, the fall of man into sin, the murder of righteous Abel, the wickedness of mankind in the earth, the call 
of Noah and the great flood of God's wrath that washed the earth of man's wickedness. Last week, we saw Noah and his family once again set foot on the face of the earth, the flood having now subsided. And the chapter ended with Noah offering sacrifices to God. And God found those sacrifices pleasing and accepted them. In response, he swore an oath of the continuation of the seasons and of the life of mankind on the earth. Well, this morning we see that oath expressed by means of a covenant. This is sometimes known as the covenant with Noah or the Noahic covenant. But properly speaking, this covenant is made between God and all of creation. First, God states that the covenant is between him and mankind in verse 9. And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. So the covenant is with Noah and his sons and all of their descendants, which includes us. But the covenant is not only with mankind. In verse 10, God continues and says, And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. So the covenant is not limited to mankind, but is with all living things. Then in verse 13, we see that the covenant is actually made with the earth itself. He says, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. John Gill, the 18th century Baptist pastor, called it a covenant of conservation because it was made with all of creation and promised the continuation or the conservation of creation with the promise of no more global flood to destroy all life. In verse 17, in the first 17 verses, I'm sorry, of our text this morning are concerned with this covenant and all of its duties and promises. And we'll see that in large part, this covenant that God relates here to Noah and his sons restates the covenant with Adam, only with different promises this time. And since the face of the earth has been remade in the course of the flood, God is in one sense starting over or beginning again with Noah. In this covenant, God recommissions Noah with the same work he had originally given to Adam in the garden, which will ultimately be fulfilled by Christ through his church, and that is to fill the earth with worshipers. So let's explore this covenant the promises that attend it, and the covenant duties that God gives to Noah, and then look at the latter half of the chapter, which is concerned with the fall of Noah, which contains both a curse and a blessing and hints of the new covenant that is to come. At the end of chapter 8, Noah had come off the ark to the dry land, and he offered sacrifices to God of all the clean animals. And I pointed out last week that this indicated that Noah was not the promised seed, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. He's a sinner. He has need to make sacrifices and offerings to God. But his offering did please the Lord, and it was in the context of that offering that God swore an oath 
Uh, it's later called that in the book of Isaiah, that God swore an oath to himself that he would never again curse the ground because of man or destroy every living thing in, in a flood. And so we see that in chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. And then at the beginning of chapter 9, we see this oath now expressed to Noah and his sons in the form of a covenant. And in many aspects, it does resemble the covenant made with Adam in the garden. It begins with a blessing in verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now for God to bless someone is for him to bestow upon them his divine favor in abundance. And as it was with Adam, so it is with Noah and his sons. The blessing takes the form of multiplying on the earth. Because God blessed them and said for this to happen, it will happen. They will multiply. They will be fruitful and fill the earth. The original mandate to Adam had been for the purpose of filling the earth with image bearers who would worship God and expand the garden temple to fill the world. But here, the image of God in man has been marred because of Adam's sin. But we see that we're still image bearers. That image may be obscured, but it still exists. There's no longer a garden temple. Adam was exiled from the garden, and it has been destroyed in the flood. But Noah and his sons received this same covenantal commission to repopulate the earth. Noah, being a righteous man, the reader at this point is hopeful that his descendants, like him, will be righteous and, and therefore the earth will be filled with image bearers who will reflect the glory of God and worship him as their creator. But we know from the last verses of chapter 8 that this is not to be, for the imagination of man's heart is evil continually from his youth. God had destroyed the earth and all living things because of this evilness in the hearts of men. But he tells Noah and his sons to multiply and to fill the earth. Notice that each one of them had a wife, one wife. Peter tells us there were eight souls saved in the ark, Noah, his three sons, and the four women. Polygamy, which had become common before the flood, is done away with. It is not condoned by God. God here intends for the world to be populated through the institution of marriage between one man and one woman as he had initially created Adam and Eve in the garden. And in spite of the wickedness of man, God graciously blessed them that they would be fruitful and fill the earth. And they must because God has promised that there will be an offspring of the woman, the promised seed who will crush the head of the serpent. And because that seed has not yet come, mankind must continue if God is to keep his promise. Which means that God intends to work through fallen, sinful human beings in order to bring about his glorious purposes in the world. Now, this should give us hope. 
that God can work through us as well as he can through Noah. Noah was righteous because he believed God and that faith was counted to him as righteous righteousness. But he was sinful as well as we're about to discover this morning. And yet God worked through him to save the human race and to repopulate the world. This is indeed a blessing of divine favor that is altogether unmerited. And and it speaks to the overwhelming wisdom and power of God that he can bring to pass his perfect plan of redemption through such flawed instruments as sinful people. The commission given to Noah and his son continues. And, And while it follows the commission that is given to Adam, it also differs significantly at this point. In verse 2 we read, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, and on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Now compare that to the commission that was given to Adam in chapter 1, verse 28. Where God said, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The blessing is the same. The mandate to fruitfulness and multiplication is the same. But the difference is in this aspect of dominion. It's still there, but now there is a hostility that did not previously exist. Now the animals will dread and fear man. They will no longer serve him with gladness. But they are given into his hand. Man still exercises dominion, but just as the curse in Genesis 3 now required man to toil and to labor in order to bring forth food from the earth because the earth itself would fight against him, so now the animals themselves are hostile to man. They fear him and dread him. Just as the image of God in man was diminished by the fall but not eradicated, so his dominion over the animals is diminished, but it is not abolished. And this is a blessing from God. There were only eight people in the ark and a a number of animals, many of which were predators, which would have been perfectly capable of preying on man physically had God not restrained them by putting in them an instinctual fear of mankind. God's original covenant with Adam included the provision of food for man. In Genesis 1, verse 29, And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Now this provision was not repealed but it is added to in the covenant of conservation made here with Noah in verse 3. And every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now notice that there's no distinction made here between clean and unclean animals. Everything that moves is given for food. To the Jewish nation, God will later give them laws restricting their diet only to those animals that are considered clean. But here, all the animals are given to man for food. So too, in the New Covenant, all things are considered clean and acceptable for food. In Romans 14, we're told to be gracious towards one another and our convictions regarding that food, but we're also told that it is all clean. Paul writes, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. 
And so it was in the covenant of conservation. All the animals were acceptable for food. But as several commentators pointed out, and I enjoyed this, so I thought I would share it with you, notice that it says God has given man all the animals and herbs for, for his use as food, but it does not require that they be used that way. As Henry Morris says, obviously, of course, he was also free to refrain from eating any creatures or any herb which he did not want. So if you don't like Brussels sprouts, you are not required to eat them. Amen. Amen. The, the point is, in this covenantal arrangement, God has provided for mankind to sustain us that we might continue to live and be fruitful and multiply. But this provision does come with a limitation, which we find in verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with the life, that is, its blood. Though all animals have been given for our food, the limitation is that we are not to eat the animals with the blood in them. There are several reasons underlying this limitation. First, it demands our respectful treatment of the animals. They are to be properly killed and the provision cared for. They're not to be eaten in a haphazard kind of way. And this accords with what we read elsewhere in Scripture concerning our responsibility as good stewards of the things that God has given us. Second, this prohibition serves to mark a distinction between man and the animals. The animals do indeed tear one another and eat the flesh with the blood in it. We have a greater responsibility. We are made in God's image with dominion over his creation. We are to respect that creation and conduct ourselves as those who have been given rule and dominion. We are not to act like wild animals. Third, and most importantly, we see that the blood is the life of the flesh. If you'll remember from Genesis 4, when Cain murders Abel, it is the blood of Abel that cries out to God for justice. The blood is the life. Consequently, the blood becomes the most important part of the sacrificial system. In Leviticus, Moses writes, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood... I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and I will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you. God gave us the flesh for food. Now he says, I have given you the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The life is in the blood. And since a sacrifice is a life for a life to make atonement for sins, it is the blood that makes atonement. We see this continued focus on the blood of atonement throughout the scriptures in the Passover and, of course, in the blood of Christ in the New Covenant, where Jesus himself says, For this is my blood of the New Covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And just as the availability and the acceptability of all animals for food is reaffirmed in the New Covenant, this prohibition against eating blood is also part of the New Covenant. If you'll remember in Acts 15, when the early church met in a council there in Jerusalem to give some direction to the Gentile church in Antioch, there were some questions concerning whether the Gentiles needed to adopt uh, the system of Jewish laws. 
And the church met and they said, no, the Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. They do not have to become Jewish in order to be Christians. And yet they went on to say, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So the eating of meat with the blood still in it is forbidden. It is bad enough that a life must be taken for our maintenance and sustenance and blood shed for our sins. But that life belongs to God, not to us. To eat the flesh with the blood in it is to take that life for yourself. And this is why I think that uh, one of the evils that surrounds Halloween involves this idea of vampires taking the blood for their own life. It should be no surprise to us that the evil the world dreams up would be so directly contrary to the law of God. In the garden, we understand that the law of God was written on man's heart so that all men know in their hearts the moral law of God. All men know that murder is wrong. That's why Cain's murder of Abel is so shocking in Genesis 4. Murder does violence to the image of God in man. This is made explicit now in the covenant in Genesis 9. We read in verse 5, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. So here it is explicitly stated that the taking of a human life made in the image of God is a violation of God's law, and God's justice demands punishment. Even the animals are subject to this law. In Exodus, God tells the people of Israel, if an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. This is also written in our hearts and explains why, as man spread out across the globe and settled new territory, that the largest and most dangerous predators were the first ones to be killed off. The ones that endangered our lives get hunted down first, and then the ones that endanger the lives of our livestock. John Gill humorously said that this would lessen the number of mischievous animals. In the next verse, we see the establishment of human authority or magistrates to enforce this law of God among mankind. Verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. This is why Paul writes in Romans and says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Paul is just restating what is here in Genesis 9. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. The taking of a human life is wrong because man was made in the image of God. 
This is an encouraging thing. The image of God had been defaced and marred by the fall, but it's still there. We're still created in the image of God, and that image of God in man deserves honor and respect. And so God institutes human authorities to execute justice against murder. God then repeats the command to be fruitful and multiply here in verse 7. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. And then next, God expresses to Noah and his sons the covenant promises that he will fulfill as the Lord of the covenant. We find these in verses 8 through 11. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. What a relief. That must have been to Noah and his sons, who may have even entertained the thought that having kids might not be such a great idea. What if God just decides to wipe everybody out again? Maybe we shouldn't do that. But God has commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, and then he assures them, I'm not going to cause another flood to wipe out all of humanity Local floods may happen, but never again a global flood to destroy the world. God then offers a sign of this covenant promise, the rainbow. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Again, the covenant is between God and all of creation, not just Noah or even mankind, but with all the creatures and with the earth itself. And the sign of the covenant is the rainbow. Now, a sign is a visual representation that directs us to something other than itself. A sign on the highway tells us of an upcoming exit or some services that will be offered at an upcoming exit. The sign is not the thing that is signified. The rainbow is the sign of the covenant of conservation. There were no rainbows before the flood when the firmament covered and surrounded the earth with uh, water vapor. But now there are water droplets in the sky and, and they refract the light of the sun shining through them and produce a rainbow. And so God says in verse 14, It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, it's not as if God is going to forget and he needs a reminder that he's going to become wrathful and and think, I'm going to destroy them all. Wait a minute, there's a rainbow. That's right, I promised I wouldn't. That's not why it says it will serve as a reminder. But I imagine after what Noah and his sons had just been through, 
they probably needed some reassurance that God would never do that again. Otherwise, they they would have been unlikely to leave the vicinity of the ark. I mean, if they thought, what if God becomes angry and decides to wipe everything out with another flood? Maybe we should stay right here next to this big boat. So the repetition of the promise and the sign of the covenant visible in the sky would give them reassurance that it was safe to spread out over the face of the earth, to multiply, and to fill the earth. At some point, I imagine, they probably disassembled the ark. You ever wondered why they've never found it? It takes a while for trees to grow to maturity. Noah and his sons are beginning to live again on the face of the earth. Imagine for a while they probably sheltered in the ark, but at some point they probably took it apart and used that lumber for other purposes. As God promised, there was a reminder in the sky. Every time a cloud appeared and rain, there would be a rainbow, and they would have the assurance that it was safe. A global flood is not beginning again. Now, they would have to have faith and to trust God and not trust in the ark But the rainbow is a picture of God's grace, the beauty of his light. He is described as the father of lights. His light is refracted through the prism of the waters of judgment so that his light becomes visible and beautiful to our eyes. Consider this. The rainbow is given as a sign of the covenant. But what is it a reminder of? It's a reminder that God has promised not to judge the earth with another flood. The rainbow is a reminder of the flood, a reminder of God's judgment and his wrath on the sins of mankind. Other than Genesis 9, the only other mention of a rainbow in the Old Testament is found in Ezekiel 1. Here the prophet has a vision of God on his heavenly throne. And he writes, Like the appearance of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And the rainbow here is used to describe the glory of God shining around his throne just before he comes in judgment on his people. There are only two other mentions of a rainbow in Scripture. We read one of them this morning. They're both found in Revelation. In Revelation 4, which we read, John sees a vision of the throne in heaven, much like Ezekiel did, and he describes it in very similar language. He who sat there was like jasper and sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. So once again, the rainbow is used to describe the glory of God surrounding his throne. But then in Revelation chapter 10, we read of a mighty one coming down from heaven clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. When he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. In context, this is Christ coming in judgment at the end of time. And instead of a crown of thorns, which he wore when he bore the curse for us, Now he wears a crown of a rainbow. And seven thunders uttered their voices when he spoke. 
This is an allusion to Psalm chapter 29 where we are told to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And then seven times in Psalm 29, we are told something concerning the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The voice of the Lord strips the forests bare. And then Psalm 29 ends with this. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. A rainbow crown symbolizing the judgment of God and seven thunders symbolizing the voice of God and the power that it contains. God sits enthroned at the flood in judgment over creation. How ironic is it that those in the world who defy the decrees of God concerning human sexuality in direct opposition to the covenant duty to be fruitful and multiply then have chosen to clothe themselves with a rainbow. They are clothing themselves with the sign of God's judgment as they openly defy his decree and break his covenant. When we see a rainbow, it is to serve as a reminder, a reminder of God's judgment on sin and of his promise that he will never again judge sin in that manner. The next time God judges sin on that scale, it won't be with water, it will be with fire. The reminder of that rainbow, every time we see that in the cloud, should remind us of God's justice, his judgment, but also of his promise. Now the remainder of chapter 9 now tells of the fall of Noah, which is followed by a curse and a promise, just as the fall of Adam was. It begins well enough in verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. So we're told of Noah's three sons, one of his grandsons, which indicates the passage of time since the flood. Children have been born. And we're told that it was from these that the whole world was populated We are all descended from Noah. He stands as a second Adam, new head of a human race and an earth remade after the flood. To further indicate the passage of time, we're told that Noah has cultivated a vineyard. And Noah began to be a farmer and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine, was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Now it takes about three years for a grapevine to mature enough to begin to produce grapes. But most winemakers agree that it is five years before you get a harvestable crop that can actually be used. The grape juice begins to ferment almost immediately, and in two weeks, you'll have alcoholic wine. So at a minimum, the account that we are reading here happened at least three years, more likely five years or so after the flood. Now, one way that we know that is because Canaan is mentioned by name, Ham's son. He is the fourth child of Ham. So we're at least four or five years after the flood at this point. And it seems that what has happened is Noah has planted a vineyard. He has harvested some grapes. He has produced wine. 
and then he overindulges to the point of drunkenness and passes out in his tent. This was sinful on Noah's part. Scripture is clear. Drunkenness is a sin. Now, we might be inclined to excuse Noah just a little bit. He's a man of faith. He's righteous. But it was his faith that was counted as righteousness, not his deeds. He's clearly a sinner, just as we are. But we might be inclined to have a little sympathy for him. It's been a rough couple of years for Noah. 120 years ridiculed by his peers as he builds the ark and preaches to them of coming judgment. Mass destruction and death outside the ark as Noah and his family spend a year cooped up in the boat and the world is washed clean of man's wickedness. Then he comes out to see everything he has ever known gone. Cities, roads, technology, family, friends, every evidence of man and human activity on the earth, gone. And then years of rebuilding from scratch, homesteading with his three sons, eight people, that's it, eight people alive on the entire planet until grandchildren begin to be born. It's a lot of work just to survive in that situation. One can almost understand his overindulging in the wine, but it was sinful. And in this drunken state, he becomes uncovered, but in the privacy of his tent. So at this point, Noah has sinned. He has become drunk, but he is in the privacy of his tent. But then we read in verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So Ham entered the tent where he had no right or cause to be, and he saw his father in this drunken state. Then he went out and told his brothers what he had seen. The scripture doesn't elaborate on the manner in which Ham relayed this information, but it's pretty clear that he sinned in what he has done. As we've seen before, the moral law of God is written on our hearts So the command to honor your father and your mother is there as well. Ham apparently did not honor his father in this case. Whether he's delighting in his father's fall from grace or mocking his father, we don't know. Scripture doesn't say, but he clearly was sinful in his behavior. By contrast, Shem and Japheth do honor their father in verse 23. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So with a cloak of some sort held over their shoulders, they back their way into the tent, cover their father up. It's a respectful thing to do, honoring him as their father even though he was sinfully drunk. Well, this should teach us that the command to honor our parents is not dependent on their worthiness to receive honor. We are to honor our parents because they are our parents, and no other reason is necessary. And the command applies to adults as well as to children. Ham is an adult. He has four sons at this point. He failed to honor his father. In verse 24, it says, So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Now, he knew it because he woke up and he's covered with a garment that wasn't his own. So he wakes up and he goes, What happened here? 
probably asked his wife or his sons. The fall of Noah into sin is then followed with the pronouncement of a curse along with a promise, just as it had happened in Genesis 3 after Adam's fall. In verse 25, Then he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brethren. Now, there's no blessing given to Ham's other three children, so it's very likely that all of Ham's descendants experienced this curse. Canaan is specifically mentioned because his descendants will be involved with the nation of Israel. Canaan is cursed to be a servant of servants, the lowest of menial laborers. But Noah continues his prophetic utterance in verse 26, and he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. So Noah blesses the Lord for the first time in Scripture. God is identified as the God of a particular people, the God of Shem. In saying that the Lord is the God of Shem, it is implied that the promised seed will come through Shem's line, and indeed, He does. Nehemiah Cox notes that the curse of Ham and his son Canaan prepared the way for the blessing of Shem and his posterity by Abraham. For it was by the execution of this curse that the Canaanites were afterwards disinherited and Israel planted in their place. Cox then goes on to point out that the sign of Israel's covenant was circumcision, which should have kept alive in their minds the sin of Ham in beholding his father's nakedness. And this sign should have served as a constant reminder to them to honor your father and mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. But then the third son, Japheth, is also blessed in verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. We are Japheth's descendants. Noah's blessing on Japheth is a promise for his descendants to share in the blessing of Shem's descendants. And indeed we do, for we Gentiles have been grafted in to Christ. Nehemiah Cox again says the blessing of Japheth and the interest of Shem's blessing signifies not only his personal interest in the Messiah who was to come from Shem, but also the calling of the Gentiles from his posterity to be joint heirs with the Jews in the blessings of the new covenant. The chapter then concludes with the end of Noah's life. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah's not the promised seed. He sins, and he dies. But it's interesting. He lived to experience the next chapter, which we'll deal with, the next two chapters, which we'll deal with next week. Noah lived to see Babel, to see the exile from Babel. He lived to see Abraham's 58th birthday. It would be another 17 years after the death of Noah before Abram departs for the land of Canaan. Noah lived a long and a full life. The history told here in chapter 9 bears a striking resemblance to the fall of Adam in chapter 3. Adam and Noah both stood as the head of humanity in the world. Adam and Noah were both commanded by God to fill the earth and have dominion over it. Adam and Noah both sinned with fruit. Adam with the fruit of the tree, Noah with the fruit of the vine. 
Adam and Noah both had an awareness of their nakedness after they sinned. Adam and Noah were each provided a covering by someone else. Adam by God, Noah by his sons. After both their sins, there was a curse pronounced that would have a profound effect on humanity ever since. And in the pronouncing of those curses, there was also a promise, a future redemption that would be found in Christ. Adam and Noah both failed in their covenantal duties to fill the earth with image bearers who would worship God and reflect his glory. But Christ, the last Adam, is fulfilling that mandate in his church even today as the prophecy of Noah is brought to fulfillment in the salvation of the Gentiles. We dwell in the tents of Shem, sheltered under the shadow of the God of Shem, made righteous by the blood of atonement shed by Shem's descendant, Jesus Christ, the promised seed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let's pray.